Forward, a Fiserv podcast, features conversations with the people moving financial services and commerce forward. Here's your host, Jason Hendricks with Fintech Forge. Eisenhower said plans are nothing, but planning is everything. The pandemic section of a business continuity plan is no exception. Today's episode is a fireside chat with Julie Signorelli-Brown, COO of the consumer business for Citizens Bank, and Matt Wilcox, SVP of Marketing Strategy and Innovation at Fiserv. The New England-based Citizens Bank shares how they were able to respond so quickly as the global nature of the COVID-19 crisis changed their plans. Julie explains how people make all the difference and how she will apply the lessons learned during the pandemic to make the future better. Julie, thanks for taking the time to share with us, you know, the story of how Citizens was responding, some of the human stories behind it. And I'm curious because I feel like every institution had a slightly different experience. But, you know, as the COO, your job, you know, is to maintain that business continuity plan so operations will run smoothly. At what point did you say to yourself, you know, I might need to go to see that. So maybe just start as, is yours in written, like, you know, do the regulators come in and say, show us your hard copy? We expect a big binder. Is it on a shared drive somewhere? We can generally keep them on a shared drive. Some of the discrete departments will print them. We do visit them every year and produce them, but they're generally on a shared drive. So I'm curious, at what point did your spidey sense start to tingle and say, you know what? It might have been about a year since I've, I've been back over that thing and Let's be honest, most of us do not pay particular attention to the pandemic planning section of it. When did you say, yeah. you know, it's time to actually go reread that thing? Yeah, I think we knew right away that this was going to be something that was going to be very different. So we enacted our BCP leads and our head of security does a great job corralling those resources. But I think it was almost immediately we knew that this was something that we've not seen before. So the referral to the plan was a good guide, but it really just took a lot of thinking on your feet and a lot of interaction with diagnosing what's happening and who's feeling what as we started entering into this, I'll call it a crisis. Yeah. So I think you stand out relative to a lot of banks in that you started to enact early versus letting the situation unfold and, you know, the natural tendency is to gather more information. In fact, if you look at survival training, they say that the vast majority of people, you know, close to 80% actually freeze because they're like, I don't have enough information. It's a situation I haven't encountered before. What do you think set citizens apart in that, that you, you know, leapt into that? Because there wasn't good information yet. It's not something anyone has seen before. Yeah, we have a lot of different avenues for communications at citizens. I think just when this was on the onset and we knew it was something that we hadn't seen before, we just mobilized everyone, started sharing information. We weren't looking for more information. I think, if anything, we were trying to gauge what peers were doing, and we realized that some of the peers were not moving quickly. And so we just, you know, got the right people on the line and just made some very, very quick decisions. And I can give you a real example. When this thing first started, our head of facilities is deeply involved in the communities, and he had heard and was following the CDC guidelines on this notion of droplets being one of the prime 
spreaders of the virus and came up with an idea, his team, and he came up with an idea on like on a Friday morning when this thing first started about putting in a physical barrier in our uh, in-store locations by Friday afternoon, we made the call to go ahead and do that. We procured the barriers and began installing them the very next day. And this was a, a plexiglass separator between our branch colleagues and our customers. And that was before we heard of anybody. Now, I think you can go into even a fast food place and see those plastic barriers up front, but uh, I'd like to think that that was one of the uh, the things that citizens did without any market intelligence at all. It just seemed like the reasonable thing to do, knowing that this virus is contracted or spread that way. Yeah. That's just an example. Yeah. Well, and for a little bit of context, for those who don't know, citizens had helped pioneer this concept of co-location. And I think you may have even been the very first of at least the major banks that were putting branches within supermarkets, Right. And so mm -hmm. when you talk about the, the in-store, we're talking about super high traffic areas, not just yeah. about a single branch. And that's really important to recognize both for the safety of the customer and for your branch staff. You know, those are two essential functions, right? Banking and grocery shopping. You could easily have said, well, those two things still have to happen, but you found a decisive action that could be taken. Yeah. Yeah, and I would say we started with the in-store for the reasons that you're pointing out and then pivoted to our in-branch network. And I think the other part, a key decision that was made in our company was to insource a lot of the maintenance and facility activity. We were completely outsourced or for the most part outsourced. We made a decision very early in the year, if not last year, to bring those folks in-house. And those were the ones that actually picked up the barriers and delivered them and installed them in the in-store network. So we had the flexibility leading that team to direct what, where they put their efforts versus an outsource model that might have been a little bit more challenging to get resources focused where we wanted them to be. You know, flexibility is one of the keys in responding to a crisis where the situation is completely foreign and unknown. Do you have any other examples of where you either had as a strength flexibility and you were able to deploy it or you now recognize, hey, we were less flexible in this regard to do things like work from home and things like that. And here's where we're going to invest in greater flexibility. Yeah, wow. I mean, that's, I can give you a million examples. I would say, first and foremost, the ability to work from home became the big pole in the tent because we did not have, I mean, we had a good amount of people working from home. We have people that are outside of our general footprint. We've been very good about you know, going where the talent is and letting those folks work from home. But in the roles that I generally run in the back office and operations, you typically, you have your people in because there's a paper reliancy, you know, to get some of the work done. So we were able to outfit and move people very quickly. Thousands of colleagues had gotten laptops procured and were online working. So that flexibility was paramount for us, and it may not have been a huge focus for people that reside in our footprint and generally used to going to their location. 
I think the other piece where we made an enormous amount of impact is I think all of the peer banks would agree with this, that the contact centers were, the phones were ringing off the hook, the wait times were hours long, people were very frustrated, it became a very public issue. We worked very quickly across the entire consumer bank to procure resources to go learn how to be a contact center agent. So a number of my team were on the phones branches that had uh, limited hours or branches that had limited foot traffic, those folks were reskilled to answer the calls of customers. So, you know, we had a, a, a really good mobilization effort. And I think one of the things too is the impact that we had to our outsourced relationships. So our contact center leverages out, so, you know, for hours and other reasons, we leverage contact centers in, in various countries that were also shut down. And some were shut down before some of our own states were shut down. So that forced us even more to move quickly. You know, instead of taking things to committee and asking people how they feel about it and vote, we were just sticking and moving. We were just going quickly, getting people on, you know, train, getting gear and made sure folks were up and running. So we took a, a training session for a contact center agent that's five weeks long, and we consolidated that into two days to mobilize wow. as many people as we could. And now, granted, those people have branch, they're not coming in cold to the banks, they have branch experience or back office, but we move from five to two. So that begs the question, what is that five weeks? Do you need five weeks? So I think coming out of this, we're gonna be asking ourselves questions like that as we come out the other side. Oh, let's come back to that in just a second. Matt, I'm curious with your view across the, you know, full host of Pfizer relationships, this concept of flexibility, you know, where did you see banks that were able to respond with great flexibility? What set them apart from those that were relatively inflexible? Yeah, I, we saw for the most part quite a shift in the financial institutions and their readiness. It was interesting because we heard from financial institutions because of Pfizer's presence as a global company, we had some awareness prior to, to Julie's point of things hitting the states, we were starting to move pieces of our business to virtual by nature. So we had some awareness and, and maybe a bit of a head start. And so we found ourselves in an interesting spot where financial institutions were coming to us to help guide them to get their workforce to a virtual position as opposed to just us helping them service their clients. We were actually helping the banks service themselves, so to speak. And I don't think that any of the companies that we were working with or the financial institutions were inflexible but there certainly were the citizens banks of the world that were moving quicker at a more rapid pace that were really leaders in the space and getting their associates and their employees in the right position to be successful and to service their clients. And then we saw those that were playing a bit of catch up, but we found ourselves in a unique position because of our global presence and our ability to work virtually and to have a bit of a head start, we found ourselves really helping banks get prepared to work virtually as opposed to the position we usually service where we help them service their clients. So we found ourselves in a bit of a unique situation, but one that we were comfortable playing. Now, it's interesting you bring up there are those that are more flexible and there are a few that you, you know, we're not gonna say they're inflexible, but 
I don't know of any of the banks that I've worked for when we talk about our planning and our strategy as it relates to our operations and infrastructure all the way down to our people. Flexibility is rarely one of those things that ends up in the criteria that that we're talking about. And Julia, I'm curious, you'd already brought up the questioning of why. You know, how important is flexibility going to be in future analysis, whether it's looking at systems or infrastructure or even how you deploy people? I think flexibility is going to be really important and, you know, less of the, you know, the formal kind of, you know, running a, a program down and, you know, figuring out everything that might go wrong. Kind of start with the end in mind and, you know, accelerate forward. I think flexibility, people need to think differently because I honestly believe this is going to change the shape of how banks operate going forward. So I think the flexibility and being open-minded. And then the other one is to trust your colleagues, to trust your colleagues to know what they need, you know, personally as they, as they strike the balance, because let's face it, people were working from home with or are working from home with small children, dogs, mailmen, you know, all of those interruptions, then you've got to be flexible and understand that that's happening and, and make sure that colleagues don't get nervous about it, that, you know, we understand it. So I honestly think flexibility is probably one of the, the key attributes that we brought forward here during this pandemic and, and also the ability to think out of the box and, and just hear everybody's ideas. Now, this idea of people working from home, dogs, cats, children interrupting things. They're funny as internet memes, but it also has this interesting effect of really humanizing, you know, the oh, bank yeah. and the experience and what they've had. Have you gotten any feedback from customers, negative or positive, related to the seeing the real human behind your banker? So personally, I could tell you that when the contact center was having some service issues with, you know, lots of calls, even when we were able to staff and, you know, add more people, the call volume was still unmanageable. We had sent a list of customers that may not have had the greatest experience. So uh, personally, I called dozens of customers. I know my peers in the consumer bank have done the same. And the feedback I got from customers was they understood why, but they were very frustrated. And a lot of times they were apologizing for their behavior with our agent. I think there was a lot of empathy, but when, you, when you're dealing with people's money and they're still looking for answers, like how is, you know, how is it gonna work for a mortgage or a, an auto loan or forbearance, or how do I get my money? They get very upset. And the feedback from the field when I was making these calls was one of appreciation. The other one was, you know, some of them were really still pretty stressed and upset. Uh, I think this one, what what made this so different is that everybody was going through it. So typically, you know, uh, in my business, we have forbearances or deferrals when there's a hurricane or a major flood or things like that. And we're dealing in geographics, right? So somebody from Cranston, Rhode Island, could be calling somebody in Texas that had, you know, a terrible flood and, you know, we can help them through it. Here, there was not one person in the, the United States that was not impacted. So I think empathy, not only on the side of our customers, but our leaders, our CEO, 
led with empathy. And I think that's what makes the difference is when you lead with empathy, you have a way to connect with people that disarms them and, and makes them feel like you really truly do understand where they're coming from. So I didn't completely answer your question, but I, I wanted to give you the, the, the context that our customers were very understanding and, and get, provided some very solid feedback. Well, in that empathy in the global nature really is important to to highlight here because it's easy to talk about, you know, pandemic and technology and digitization and lose the human element. And, you know, Matt, as they say, it tends to roll downhill, right? And so you have customers calling bankers who are stressed and they're stressed because their customer is stressed and rightfully so. They're stressed because they're now working from home for the first time and have their own, you know, stresses, you know, sociologically, health and financial and now they're dealing with vendors in new ways. It really says, you know, a vendor versus partner. I'm curious if, you know, when you talk about the Pfizer experience, you know, they came to you stressed about something that is not technically within your scope of what they're looking for from you. Yet, you know, Pfizer have had to respond with empathy and recognition of that understanding. I'm curious how that played out across the Pfizer organization. Yeah, I think, you know, Julie hit it on the head from the top down and leading with empathy. We had great leadership, those that have managed through many different forms of crisis or crises. And, and it was really from a top down. And, and, and the message from them was we are in this with our clients and we need to be a partner with them and we'll come out better through all of this if we do this the right way. And we had clients coming to us seeing if they could lean on us to help them procure laptops for their workforce to go remote or virtual. We had this pandemic essentially reprioritize some of our clients' roadmaps where they knew they had gaps before but this really widened the gap for them. And so all of a sudden where things were kind of kicked down the road, the can was kicked down the road, they needed and were coming to us with a sense of urgency. So we didn't see work stop. We saw our clients really accelerate the work that they needed to have done because they wanted to be in a position to service their customers and they weren't fully equipped to do so. And so you put everything else aside with lengthy statements of work and project timelines and things like that. And it was really all hands on deck on getting to the point where we were putting our clients in a position to service their customers in a new way. I mean, many of them have adopted digital technology and mobile technology. We saw mobile strategies being thrown out the window and they were enacting on a digital strategy. And how do we service our customers from a full-service perspective in a digital manner as opposed to sort of a self-service strategy. And we were we found ourselves helping them kind of close some of those gaps as quickly as we possibly could. Now, I want to delve into that because that's really interesting, this idea of digital verse is not synonymous with DIY in this concept yep. of kind of full channel. And we know each other well enough, Matt, you know how I cringe to even say the word omni-channel and what does, you know, what yep. does that mean? I'm curious because for the longest time, it's been your job, this could almost be your job description, is the person who beats the digital drum within Fiserv around this need of transformation to rethink how you do delivery. I am curious now, 
the customers have had this great awakening on, oh, you know, Matt's not trying to sell me more stuff or just as evangelist, like he's pushing this. What were the big aha moments for clients? Because you said it suddenly went from mobile to digital and it went from DIY to full service. And did people suddenly realize omni-channel means so many different things to different people, quit throwing around as a buzzword? How did that start to really take shape tangibly? Yeah, I think the end customers, so Julie's customers, and then the citizens banks of the world realize it's not really omni-channel, it's a channel, and the channel is the financial institution, and they need to get to you in a variety of ways. And when that branch channel is gone or the call center wait times just inherently because lots of people are calling with lots of issues and you're not able to get somebody on the phone, they need access to their financial institution. And so we're realizing now that we need to have full service regardless of the channel. Or I shouldn't say we are realizing, I think everybody's realizing that you need to provide full service banking. Nobody wants to be self-served. They need full service regardless of the channel. And the channel really is the financial institution. And so they realized they had simple gaps, whether it was being able to make a transfer in a, on a mobile device where they may have called in to make that transfer and they couldn't get into the IVR, they couldn't get into the call center. It may have been that they needed to get money to their mom who they normally would drop off a check to, but because of social distancing, they couldn't get to. And their mom didn't use P2P, but all of a sudden the stats of P2P are skyrocketing and they needed another way to get money. And I think it opened up everybody's eyes that we can have banking in a digital way, but it's not about just banking on a mobile device. It's offering digital solutions to the masses. Well, I think thinking about it that way, it isn't a collection of features. It's a collection of outcomes that, that they're looking for. Yeah. And I'm curious, Julie, you know, you've been speaking about that quite a bit. How is this impacting your digital roadmap and how you think about what you need to deliver from the strategic down to the technical? Yeah, so no question, digital is front and center. We, we've spent a lot of time and money over the last couple of years in getting our digital channels up to snuff. So we've already had some programs that we're running, but now, uh, you know, we are really looking, number one, to get the paper out because people that had to show up for work in the office were people that we relied on to deal with paper, particularly in our mortgage business yep. um, and our other lending businesses. So out of all the people I have on my team, I had a couple of hundred that had to be there for paper. So I personally have in uh, the bank, we're leading a charge called the war on paper. And we are going to get a lot of paper out. We have channel views, product views, the whole nine yards. I have pods stood up for it. That's a priority. The rest of the organization, yes, I mean, we are all talking about how we can accelerate digital capabilities in my world specifically around areas like collections, like fraud, like all the areas that are usually high touch from a colleague perspective or heavy duty phone, we're looking to move to digital. So uh, yes, our priority is to digitize as much as we can and do that quickly and get the paper out so that people can work from home pretty easily without the reliance on, you know, heading to an office to get to a stack of, you know, eight by 11 uh, papers. 
It's funny you say that. Early in the pandemic, I was having a conversation with the bank CEO, and he was describing their greatest stress was the people who are now work from home, we can't get enough printers and we can't get enough paper. And the question I raised was, (laughs) maybe you should be questioning how do we get rid of paper in this process, you know, right now, as opposed to figure out how we get more reams of paper. Sorry, Staples and others that we're still hoping this was going to drive more paper. The war on paper, I love that. It's clear in terms of the outcome you're trying to drive, but it's really broad reaching across the organization. Mm -hmm. And those ideas are going to come from everywhere. In this next stage of planning, how are you looking to manage that in your war on paper? Yeah. So we are uh, literally right now, we've assembled a pod type structure. So an agile pod type structure that has representation across the consumer bank. So there'll be product people, there'll be technical people, there are operations professionals, risk and legal, like all the people that you need in a room to make a decision to move quickly. So we're going to be doing it in that structure. I've opened the door for all my colleagues in operations to submit ideas on, you know, where can we do without paper and, you know, why do we generate paper and everything is lead with digital first. So any of the current programs we have going on, we're going to revisit those and make sure that we lead with digitization and I'm talking strictly on paper. So I think we've learned from this and and we've learned from other successful programs that we've run inside of Citizens. You put the right people in the room with a diverse thought set, right, diverse thinking, and you will get at it and you just got to move very quickly. So if that's the goal of the consumer bank, which it is, you'll get the cooperation and and the mind share that you need to make it happen quickly. Matt, so you're used to having a foot in each one of the the puddles here. One is banks that are not known for their agility and the fintech startups that maybe can be overly agile to their own detriment. One might say sometimes even chasing their own tail in pursuing this. What best practices looking at the banks that have done a really good job at becoming agile, and I mean lowercase agile, would you share, say, you know, these are the ones that really have been successful in the outcome, not just in adopting the uppercase agile? Yeah, I think that it starts, I think, with through the lens of the customer. And oftentimes we see some banks want to follow the, the fintech model, and oftentimes they're chasing these shiny objects, whereas the ones that we have seen that are really prepared and successful is is when they look through the lens of the customer, they talk to the customer. They find out what are the pain points. We oftentimes have them do a study where they look at how many clicks does it take to do, you know, your 10 most important transactions that a customer would conduct either in the mobile app or or online. And it's really building and, and looking at it in a more simple approach. As we've started to see folks shift their investments, if they shift them and move to a more agile manner where they're they're iterating and innovating quickly, it's not the big innovations. They're mobilizing teams for very specific objectives. So like Julie mentioned, the war on paper, that has multiple threads, multiple things, but it is an ongoing diligent effort that she's going to be conducting, it's not a, we're going to put a war on paper and the problem is going to be solved in 90 days because that's what the roadmap said it was going to be. They're focused in on key priorities and key initiatives. And I think our advice to financial institutions is 
Don't bite off more of the apple than you have to. Focus in on the biggest, quickest wins, but putting people in the right priorities. We often have people focused on, they have innovation centers within their financial institution, and they're building shiny objects that are going to sit on the shelf for a period of time that aren't aligned with the business and the business objectives. We're seeing more and more of that go by the wayside where there's a focused effort across the financial institution focused in on the biggest initiatives to get the biggest wins, like the war on paper. And sometimes the most important wins aren't always the biggest or the shiniest. You know, Julie, as we wrap up, you know, a big part of being agile is individual initiative and individuals feeling empowered to take action. Any great stories come out of citizens' response that you can share about individual initiative and taking action? Yeah. So I think if the, uh, everybody can attest to the shortage of certain critical items when this pandemic started. So, you know, hand sanitizer being one, and we were able to procure concentrated hand sanitizer, which we had our team drive out to go get in New Jersey and in Michigan. We mixed our own hand sanitizer following very strict OSHA requirements, bottled it, and then they drove them to branches and to other locations that needed to be open. We also mixed our own bottles of disinfectant and replaced wipes when we couldn't, when we couldn't get them. So very creative solutions that were by people that were just being empowered and on a mission to protect our colleagues. And knowing that they were short, they found alternative ways. They didn't ask for permission. They just went and gone and did it. So, I mean, I think that's a great example. And, and you know that empowerment is the, the big key to success when people feel empowered to make decisions and just go do something. And, and I think that's why we've come out the other side of this in very good shape. Well, around empowerment, there's all sorts of studies that show that employees that are empowered have much higher job satisfaction. How is morale around the bank right now? I'm glad you asked that. I had done, across my group, I had done a organizational health survey, and it was basically a couple of questions, but it was all circled around how you're feeling about work. And, you know, in my world, operations is generally a mixed bag. You know, some people feel appreciated and valued and others, you know, want to make more money or, you know, some elements of dissatisfaction. I would say across the board in my organization, and I think I can speak for the rest of the consumer bank here at Citizens, our SAT scores were in the 90s that people were feeling positive about their work, their contribution, and the way citizens handled this pandemic. And I've also done virtual coffee breaks with my team, not my direct reports or senior leaders, but people that are in the throes of this thing in very production-type positions. I've done them every week for the last few weeks, and I'm going to continue to do them. And the sentiment there was one of gratefulness that the bank did what they did and the fact that they felt very comfortable at home, they had the tools they needed, and it was just really good to hear that what we did landed well on our colleagues. And one other thing I'll say that really got us some really high praise was the fact that we actually mailed 12,500 masks to colleagues' homes with directions on how to use them 
whether you were work at home or you were a colleague that came into the office. And that was another one where the, the team was just blown away. And, and to us, it was just the right thing to do. So I think the sentiment is great. People are never prouder to be a citizen. And we feel really good about where our colleagues are today. Now, one bank CEO told me she had a board member tell her, never waste a good pandemic to change behavior. And, you know, that is true. You've told a lot of great stories, both of you, about changing behaviors. As we look towards a new normal, what lessons do you want to carry forward to say, you know, these are the things we don't want to go back to or we're going to lean into to change and make that a better new normal? I think we want to continue to lean in on letting people be empowered and, and, and enjoy that empowerment and share the successes of empowerment. I think we also have learned that we are capable of moving quickly and getting things done and nothing breaks. So we want to make sure that we continue that resiliency, that drive to move quickly to get things done. So I think those are the valuable lessons, especially when you deal, you know, in banking, we're not known to be the most nimble, flexible type of business out there. (laughs) So I think we're all now having come through this and and realized what we're capable of doing. We just need to take those lessons forward and what worked there will work in the normal. So I, I honestly think just doing that and challenging people when they're falling behind or they're, they're not taking initiative or leaning into something we need them to lean into. Matt, how about you? Either, you know, from the Fiserv within your group or how you interface, you know, with the Fiserv clients. Yeah, I think, you know, we talked early on about and used the word flexibility. I think Julie hitting the word nimble, I think is critical. You know, we're going through an exercise like many are with, with kids in their, their school, how they had to go to virtual learning. Now the kids are preparing to go back to school in the fall. But our kids' school is also preparing for them to also work virtually in case, God forbid, another flare-up happens or this continues. And I think we're moving into a world where we need to be more nimble. And, you know, we often joke about financial institutions not being nimble, being rigid, not being quick. I think this has really opened our eyes that if we're all working together for the collective good of the consumer we can move faster. We've proven our capabilities to be nimble, to be virtual, but still be successful and not let the lights shut off. I mean, Julie's examples are just great on the empowerment and how people have really rallied around this crisis. I really think that that's going to be critical for us, is for us to remain nimble, but also understand that we need to focus on the critical items that are going to serve the greater good and and maybe some of the shiny stuff's going to have to wait while we get to really servicing the customers in the right way. You know, one of the things I learned in my first business continuity plan that I was charged with writing and had to study the phases of a crisis, right? And there is the the pre-phase when we're planning, there's the acute, and then there's, it's often overlooked, there's this chronic phase afterwards, right? So the immediate fire is put out or, you know, being in the Northeast, right? The snow has fallen in the Nor'easter and, you know, the roads are covered. But when it quits snowing, the crisis isn't over, right? There, There's a whole lot of cleanup that needs to be done and power lines that are down and the flooding that goes with it. You know, this really isn't over yet. Julie, you've made that point time and time again, which I think is important 
to recognize how are you looking to sustain for the long term as we go through first the chronic and then the recovery phase? Yeah, so we've, we are pivoting now. I mean, we're actually, we've crafted a plan to start bringing people back to the office. So I think from a colleague perspective, we're coming out the other side, but from a customer perspective, it's only beginning. So, you know, you've got a lot of customers that have gone on forbearance for their mortgage or their loans, and now we need to help them dig out of that. And then you've got the whole payroll protection program, which we were involved in as many of our peers are, and that's going to, when people enter into the forgiveness stage, that is also going to be a lot. So. I think what we're doing is we're preparing now and we're proactively outreaching to customers that are in forbearance and deferral and going to be helping them with options. But this is, this is far from over. Um, we're going to have several months with working with customers to get them back on track. And I think the way we led with empathy at the onset of this is how we're going to have to lead through the tail end of this when we get customers back on track and customers able to service their debt and feel good about where they landed here because, again, this will have remnants for a very long time. So colleagues in, in my group that are in the servicing function will need to continue the, what, the good work that they do with helping customers out. But we, we've got a long road ahead of us, Jason, in terms of, you know, customers getting back to being whole. And we've, we're now very focused on getting our customers back to whole. It's so great to see this combination of forward-looking recognition. You can't get all of the information, but still at the very center, it's the heart. It's the empathy that drives all of it and makes it all worthwhile. So thank you both for sharing some you know, very personal stories. I don't know. Anytime I've done a chat where we've ranged from digital transformation and agility, but also talked about the homemade hand sanitizer and people driving wipes branch to branch. And that's a, a pretty important part of the broader story. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for joining us. Look for future episodes of Forward at Fiserv.com slash forward and soon on major podcasting platforms.